It's a great pleasure to be with you this morning to share God's Word in these difficult and challenging days. Uh, Before I read the scripture for today, I want us to reframe what we're seeing in our world in general terms as the partial outpouring of God's judgment on our fallen world. Giles Brandreth on uh, radio this week said that he felt he was living in the Old Testament with floods and pestilence all around. He's not wrong in the sense that when we see natural disasters, when we see financial meltdown, economic meltdown, political meltdown, and plague and famine, and all of these manifestations in our world of what it means to be fallen, God is speaking to us. Revelation tells us that only a third of the world is presently judged by God in this period of time in that sense. It's a partial judgment. Look at the fear in our world just now. What will the end of the world look like? These are days of opportunity for us as God's people. And as we turn to Scripture now, I want us to consider what it looks like to be salt and light in this world in a way that we've maybe never thought about it before. So turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, a very precious and special passage of Scripture, which is really the closest we have in the New Testament to a Christian manifesto. If Christianity were indeed a political system or a political mindset in that sense, this is what the manifesto of Christianity would look like. What we're going to do today is to take a very small part of that and apply it to our current situation. We're going to read from verse 11 in Matthew 5, just to get the connection into verse 13 to 16, which is where we're going to do most of our thinking this morning. So let's read Matthew 5, verse 11. It may be helpful for you where you are just to read out in your little groups together just so that you feel involved here. Just read the passage out as I read it in whatever version you have. Just read it together and we'll begin now in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Around 180 AD, an unknown person wrote a letter describing adherence to Christianity, the new religion of the day. We know it as the letter to Diognetus. The writer of the letter was impressed by the early Christians. He himself was not a Christian. And he was impressed by what he called their wonderful and striking way of life. Here is an excerpt from that letter. 
Christians obey the prescribed laws. Well, that's important for us right now, isn't it? That's why we're doing things this way. And at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, yet are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. To sum it up, as the soul is in the body, so Christians are in the world. Now, that's a great phrase, isn't it? What a compliment from someone on the outside looking in. As the soul is in the body, so Christians are in the world. Is there a higher compliment than that that could ever be paid to Christian believers at a time like this? What the writer of this letter, Diognetes, is actually saying all those years ago is that the world is somehow different because Christians are in it. In fact, he's going further than that. He's actually saying the world is somehow better because Christians are in it. Jesus said something similar to his disciples. Jesus used the imagery of salt and light. And the implications of Jesus' metaphors, I think at a time like this, are powerful and revolutionary. The first thing that we want to think about here is that people who are living according to the King's Manifesto exist with a twin function. They have the function of preservation, firstly, and illumination, secondly. Preservation and illumination. Preservation in a decaying world and illumination in a dark world. So let's think firstly then about the Christian as salt. Preservation in a decaying world. Salt, as we know, have men, has many functions. It has some antiseptic functions. Uh, if you work in healthcare, you'll know that saline uh, washes are often used to try to disinfect wounds, etc. So it's got an antiseptic function, it's got a flavouring function. But in the days before refrigeration, such as first century, uh, such as the time when Jesus was speaking back in the first century AD, salt was the primary means of preserving meat. It's therefore likely that Jesus was thinking here of salt as a preservative substance. Now that's quite a remarkable thing for Jesus to say off the back of verse 12, which is why I read verses 11 and 12 together. Because Jesus has been talking about his disciples being persecuted because they live lives that glorify God. You would think then that he might say something like, in the light of the fact that you're going to be persecuted, just keep your head down and fly under the radar. Keep yourself off the grid. But instead, he actually says the exact opposite, do you notice? He says, you as a Christian believer cannot be anything other than you are. His language is definitive. You are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, one day you will become the salt of the earth, or I will make you the salt of the earth, or you can become the salt of the earth, or if you walk with me long enough, that's what you'll become. No, he says, you are now, presently, the salt of the earth. You are now, presently, the light of the world. Being salt and light, therefore, are inherently connected with what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian believer. In other words, if you are a Christian, you are salt and light. 
You are. It's who you are. To put it another way, being salt and light is connected fundamentally to our justification in Christ, who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So there is no avoiding the consequence of being who we are. They make an impact. They draw attention. They make their presence felt. It's also important to get a sense of the force of what Jesus is saying here. When he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, the, the, the force of what he's saying is really something like this. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. Now there's something exclusive about this. Only Christians can occupy this space. If you're a Christian believer, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. Do you see? You and you alone are the light of the world. In other words, if not you, then who? No other group of individuals is able to have the same impact on the world right now as you have. Healthcare workers, politicians, counsellors, decision makers. The people who are best placed to have the biggest impact on our world right now, in this time of fear, are you. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. Who's going to bring preservation into the world, if not you? Who's going to bring illumination into the world, if not you? And no other group of people in the world will experience the blessings promised to you and you alone. Do you see the force of what Jesus is saying here? So the issue facing us this morning is not a question of, will I be salt in this time of trouble? The question is, what kind of salt will I be? What kind of salt will I be? Will I be salty salt or unsalty salt? Now, my heart goes out to those of you doing your standard grade and higher chemistry right now. Well, what, what used to be higher chemistry and used to be uh, standard grade chemistry. Uh, the Lord bless all of you, by the way, those of you at school. I know it's an anxious time. Your, your fate is in the hands of your teachers, I believe. If only you'd worked harder for your prelims. But as every standard grade chemistry pupil knows, Na plus Cl minus sodium chloride does not lose its salty taste. That's a chemical impossibility, isn't it? Salt is salt is salt. It's a chemical compound. It is what it is. It does what it does. It tastes as it does. So the idea of salt becoming saltless is surely a chemical impossibility. What does Jesus mean? Well, Don Carson helps us understand this phrase. He says, the salt in use in first century Palestine was very impure. It contained all sorts of contaminants. And so it was quite possible for the sodium chloride, Na plus Cl minus, to be leached out into a purer form and to leave behind 
what was left. And what was left lacked saltness. And specifically lacked the salty taste and preservative qualities of the pure sodium chloride. So salt as salt will always be salt, do you see? But the point is this, if it becomes polluted, it's worthless. Its impact is diluted. It is of no preservative value at all and is fit for nothing. And what this means for you and me is simple. In terms of the kingdom of God, our ability to function as a preservative in this decaying world and in this moment of crisis is compromised when we ourselves are polluted. Being able to speak against decay and corruption in society is impossible if we ourselves are corrupted. Isn't that the issue for so many Christians today? We're in a space now where one of the most outspoken opponents of Franklin Graham's proposed visit to Scotland is a Church of Scotland minister in Lanark. That's a million miles away from 1955 when another Church of Scotland minister... Tom Allen at the Tron in Glasgow invited Franklin Graham's father to preach the gospel in Scotland and thousands of people came to faith. Do you see how far we have moved? Do you see how the salt has lost its saltness? Of what use is it then? Furthermore, the salt metaphor says something about our basic attitude towards our own culture. Uh, John Piper puts it this way, the salt of the earth does not mock the rotting meat. Where it can, it saves and seasons, and where it can't, it weeps. So what Piper is telling us there about this verse is this. We are not to see decay and corruption and destruction in our culture and in our society as simply inevitable and wash our hands of it. We are not to mock the rotting meat. We are not to say they deserve it. Because we deserve no less. Where we can, we save and we season. And where we can't, we break our hearts. The salt doesn't hate the meat it's trying to preserve. We're salt a conscious entity. It might hate the decay and the rot seeking to destroy the meat, but it wouldn't hate the meat itself, do you see? So Christians are not called to show hatred and anger to the world. The true Christian is called to recognize that the world needs the presence of salt or else it will decay and ultimately be thrown out. Now, there's a kingdom tension here, isn't there? Let's just think uh, just for a minute at a slightly deeper theological level here. Aren't we called elsewhere, you might be saying, to come out of the world? Aren't we called to get out of Babylon? as God's judgment is poured out there in Revelation 18? Aren't we, aren't we told to flee Babylon, to get out, come out from among our my people? How can we remain in the world yet come out of it at the same time? Well, you see, that's another of these kingdom tensions in Matthew's gospel. The New Testament's full of them. The kingdom has come fully in Christ, and yet it's not here yet, at least not fully. That remains a future date, do you see? 
The kingdom of God has invaded our lives, and yet the glory of it isn't seen. It's like a little mustard seed growing away, and one day the glory will fill the whole earth. And we get this idea of kingdom tension in Matthew's gospel all the way through, and this is another one. We are to be separate from the world, distinct, and yet we are to be in it, influencing, preserving. So being salt doesn't mean forceful overthrow or violent coercion. We are not to storm Holyrood as Christians and take over Scotland politically. That's not what we're being asked to do. Neither, though, does it mean having a siege mentality and just sitting in our little silos and and power posturing out there. We're above all this stuff. So we're not called to control secular power structures. We're not called to Christianize legislation and the values of the world. For those of you of a theological mind, you can check out um, Rushduni thinking. uh, We are not to be Rushduni reconstructionists who want to bring Old Testament law to bear on society. That's not what we're being called to do. We are not trying to restore Old Testament civil and moral laws in order to redeem 21st century Western culture. That is not the call. But we must remain active preservation agents in calling the world to heed God's standards and to heed God's warnings. We're to be what Craig Blomberg calls irritants. Salt's a bit of an irritant. You put it into a wound, what happens? It does the wound good, but my, it stings. And applying the salt of the kingdom to the wounds of a decaying, dying world structure will not be welcomed by the world. It will sting. It will be deeply uncomfortable for you as you do it and for them as they feel it. It's seen as an unwanted imposition and an uninvited intrusion. And it's a sad thing when meat is decayed for so long that it views the decay as normal and desirable. And it's a sad thing when the agent of preservation is resented and hated by the very thing that it's trying to preserve. But Jesus says that's inevitable. You do this thing, you will be persecuted. You do this thing, you will have opposition. This inevitable opposition to the intrusion of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of the world presents our church today with a very real temptation to abandon its function as salt, to become polluted, and ultimately to become apostate, fit for nothing but the dump. So that's the challenge of salt. What kind of salt are you? Let's think now about the Christian as light, illumination in a dark world, because not only are Christians to have an irritant influence on the world, we are also to provide illumination. Once again, the the context is significant. Don't you find that when opposition comes or rises against you in any way at all, our natural tendency is to hide? Don't you feel that right now? Hide, keep a low profile, stay under the radar. No, says Jesus, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your light under a bowl. Put it on a stand and let it shine before others so they can see the good you are doing. Now, here is a challenge for us. Christians, and only Christians, remember, are the light of the world. We saw that earlier, right? So, What makes our good deeds in this space right now different to the good deeds done by others who aren't Christians? Don't you see people coming together in in quite a remarkable way at a time like this? 
There's all sorts of good deeds being done around the world, in your street, in our communities. People are going the extra mile. NHS workers like me are getting a bit of a free ride at the moment, except for the fact that we have to go in and treat people. What makes Christian good deeds different? We have to accept that good deeds are done by others who aren't Christians. Many good deeds. Not just in this space, but things like children in need, red nose day, sport relief, all of these things. What makes your good deeds as a Christian any different to the good deeds of others who aren't Christian believers? Are they different at all? Well, Jesus says they are. Our good deeds are done not for the sake of the deeds themselves, but in order that others may praise our Father in heaven, that they may see your good deeds and yours alone, and as a result of seeing them, may praise your Father in heaven. How does that work? So how do my good deeds as a Christian believer provide a different outcome to the good deeds done by someone who isn't a Christian believer. Well, says Jesus, when you shine as a light in a dark world, something very remarkable happens. You, as a Christian, enable others to see. Did you notice that little word? That they may see. That they may see. That they may receive illumination. And what is it in Scripture that provides illumination? What do we know as Christian believers provides illumination in a dark world? The word of God. Psalm 119, 130. The entrance of your word brings light. And we know from John 1 that the true light coming into the world is who? Jesus himself. So being the light of the world as Christian believers essentially means that we are Jesus to the world. That in the situation we are in just now, we do not just bring soup. We do not just bring groceries. We do not just bring reassurance. We bring Jesus. Folks, there's an opportunity in this space for us in the next three months, next six months or so, as Christian believers, to do something quite remarkable something we've never had the opportunity to do before in a space like this. We have an opportunity to bring Jesus to people on a one-to-one -one basis, as well as the groceries, as well as the cut your lawn, as well as the looking after the so those who are socially isolating. How you do that will determine whether they glorify your Father in heaven or whether they just see you as another charitable helper. If you're distinctively Christian, you will find a way of bringing Jesus to people in this situation. What does that mean? Well, here's a start if you're a bit anxious about that and you don't want to appear pushy. Ask people if you can pray for them and then pray in the name of Jesus. I, I haven't had anybody, even the most skeptical atheist, I mean, they, they laugh at you and say, well, do what you like, <laughs> if that helps you. But very, very few people will refuse an offer for prayer. 
And you can pray in the name of Jesus. You can pray for them in the name of Jesus. Just two sentences. Dear Lord, I pray for Mrs. So-and-so just now that you will calm her fear, that you will help her know that you love her and care for her, and please help her know that, 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 that I'm here to help her in any way possible. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nobody's going to get antsy about that. Not really. Try it. You'll be remarkably surprised. That's only one way. You can think of 101 other ways, but do you see the point I'm making here? In order to be... In order to be distinctive light, in order to do good works in a way that brings glory to our Father in heaven, we need to be doing something other than the good works on their own. We need to allow people to see in a way that they haven't seen before what drives us as Christian believers. So that's how people will come to glorify God through your good works and not through the works of something like Children in Need or the various charitable organizations that are going on helping people at the moment. You will show them what you are doing, you do for Christ and for his kingdom and for their eternal good, not just for their temporal need. Let's think finally then about the temptations that we face here to compromise. The salt can be polluted. The light can be hidden under a bowl. What does that look like? I think there are three ways in which we can compromise here. And we will be tempted to compromise just as we have opportunity to share. And be under no doubt the, the, the enemy and the evil one will take every opportunity to, to make sure that we are polluted and ineffective and that we are hidden under a bowl and, and invisible. There are three ways in which this can happen. The first is abandonment. The second is concealment. And the third is redefinition. I just want to touch on them briefly as we finish. The Christian who embraces abandonment simply refuses to be salt and light. Christ is reserved for the spiritual realm, church services and functions. Well, this is going to be an interesting place for you if that's your situation. If you depend on the ritual of coming to church as the, def as the defining feature of your Christian faith, can I say respectfully, you're kind of stuffed for the next three months. You might not make it through. If it's only ritual, if it's only this, you're done. If it's relational with God and it's real, you'll be fine spiritually. But this will test the depths of your Christian commitment. It's novel at the moment. It'll soon become habit. Oh, I don't need to go to church anymore and I'll just catch up with that online whenever I can. And oh, it's Wednesday already. Oh, I'll just leave it till next Sunday. That's, that's where you may be. Please be aware of that. If your spiritual life depends on the little bubble of church, in the spiritual realm and the rest of your life is a secular experience this period will not be good for you and you need to address that now and that spiritual secular idea is a, is a great strategy of the, of the evil one because it allows us enough Jesus to comfort our hearts but not enough Jesus to bring us into conflict with the world So if you're the kind of person that says that Christianity is your personal faith but you don't take Jesus with you to work, 
then your house, your life is like a house rather with many rooms. You've been socially isolating for years as a Christian. Jesus lives in the religious room. Your favorite politician lives in the political room. Your favorite sports team lives in the sports room. You want Jesus, you just don't want a Jesus who actually calls you to visible conflict with the world. Folks, that's abandonment of your Christian duty. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And only you can operate in that space. Secondly then, the Christian who embraces concealment keeps Jesus around and even puts up a Christian front on issues that the world already thinks are outrageous. Say something like sex trafficking or child abuse or whatever. Now, everybody opposes these things. And as Christians, we jump on that bang and say, we think these things are terrible. And they are. And we should. But Christians who only challenge structures that are culturally acceptable are not really being an irritant, are they? They're simply being insipid and allowing their own agenda to be governed by the agenda that's socially acceptable in our culture. There's no dissonance there, is there? It's easy to speak out against these things, much harder than the things that really matter. So that's concealment. And then, of course, there's the temptation in this space for Christians simply to redefine Jesus, redefine the gospel, redefine the kingdom of God so there's no conflict at all. And we see this all around us, don't we? This is the Christianity of the niche Jesus, the gay Jesus, the environmentalist Jesus, the feminist Jesus, the New Age Jesus, the Black Power Jesus, the Liberation Theology Jesus, the Cult Jesus, the Vegetarian Jesus, whatever Jesus you want Jesus to be, just redefine him. And Christians are in danger of redefining the kingdom agenda so it fits our cultural shape. And that is a popular and devastating tragedy in our world. We end up with the kingdom of David or the kingdom of Nathan or the kingdom of Alan or John or Mary or Jeannie rather than the kingdom of God, do you see? And all of these are ways that we can abandon our calling to be salt and light, to be the living, breathing presence of the kingdom of God and the fallen kingdom of the world. Brothers and sisters, if you, if you refuse to embrace your identity as salt and light, you're refusing this morning to embrace the one who made you salt and light in the first place. It's a matter of committing treason against your king. Do you see that? The king has commissioned we as his followers to preserve the dying world as his salt. The king has commissioned we as his followers to illuminate the dark world as his light. And this morning, and this week, and this month, and the next three months, and the next six months, as they unfold with all their fears, offer us opportunities to be the salt and light through which the kingdom of the world may actually come to know him. And without us, there's no hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you will write it deeply into our hearts and that you will cause us to respond by your spirit and to seek the opportunities that you may grant us in coming days to be the people you have called us to be.
We ask for the glory of the Lord Jesus and the extension of his eternal kingdom.